The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a priest member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Good. Uh, thank you. It's good to be back. Yep, definitely. Father, I, uh, I, I wanted to talk about the Society of St. Pius X tonight because we have, uh, we have a, a several several emails concerning, um, in particular, this uh, recent video that was put out by Church Militant. They did a, a spotlight video, mm -hmm. rather lengthy, lengthy uh, program. I believe it was near an hour long where they, they focused on this, um, this, these supposed uh, abuse cover-ups by the Society of St. Pius X. I believe the, the, title, the title of the, the program says something about being sympathetic to, to perversion. Um, so, Father, I'd like to get, get your, your take on this. I watched through the video, I believe you, you did as well, or at least read, read through the transcripts <coughs> of it. And we have uh, multiple emails from viewers wanting to know your take on this. Do you believe these allegations that Church Militant has made against the Society of St. Pius X? Uh, if so, what kind of ramifications does that have for the SSPX faithful? What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, when you ask, or when they ask, if I, I believe that these things are true, um, I would have to say I don't know. I mean, there, there's such a thing as uh, rash, uh, rash judgment, right? There's rash, rash suspicion, right? And then there's just uh, rashly dismissing something and, and saying that couldn't possibly be true. Uh, you know, if it's a matter of could these things possibly be true? Well, yes, they could be. But, you know, in all charity, we're supposed to assume that they're not. Uh, until they're proven, right? But at the same time, um, we have to realize uh, that there could be a prudent suspicion. What I mean by that is this. Uh, rash, rash judgment is uh, making a judgment that somebody is guilty or innocent, mostly guilty in this case, based upon a lack of evidence, okay? And uh, when we judge someone guilty without the sufficient evidence, generally there's, there's something that supplies for the lack of evidence, and that is a certain ill will on our part. Like we have a certain malice toward that person. We have a, a very low opinion of that person, and though we don't have the evidence, we just decide, well, they must be guilty because that person's no good anyway. Uh, that's rash suspicion, see? So uh, that's rash judgment, I beg your pardon. So I would not make a judgment like that in this case, right? Simply on the basis of what church, uh, church militant brought up, because there's a certain animus there. There's a, there's a hostility in church uh, militant. And on the part of Michael Voris, which is well known, and it's not rash judgment to say that. I, I think it's pretty obvious and well recognized and I don't know that he denies it really. Mm, I He's think it's very very critical. Of it's it. palpable throughout the video too. Yes, yes. And um but rash rash suspicion is not the same as rash judgment. Rash suspicion is where you have no evidence and you just assume somebody's guilty anyway or you suspect them of being guilty even though there's no evidence whatsoever linking them to any wrongdoing, right? That's rash suspicion. And again, that also indicates a certain malice on the part of the, the person doing it that's rashly suspecting another without any real uh, tangible evidence to, to connect them to the crime. Well, I, I would say that um, the testimony which was brought forth by this uh, Christine Nile, Christina Niles, is, exactly. that um, is not of no value whatsoever in the sense that it, I wouldn't just dismiss it out of hand as having no credibility whatsoever. I don't know. I don't know who this is and who she is and so on. <clears throat> but um, I will say, they, say this, 
that, you know, I was with the Society of St. Pius V for five years. St. Pius X. I was with the Society of St. Pius X for five years. And, um, the, you know, there were accounts, there were stories, there were uh, things that were said uh, offhand that didn't amount to any conclusive evidence of anything. But uh, there are things that you might expect these days. There are things you might expect because um, these are things that were happening in seminaries because um, homosexuals are gravitating, gravitating towards seminaries. And it's understandable why. I mean, one would not have to be, have it explained why a homosexual male would gravitate toward a seminary, right? Um, and uh, we know what happened to the seminaries of the Novus Ordo here after Vatican II and how they became just hotbeds of homosexual activity, like beehives of homosexual activity, so that, um, you know, those who were not homosexuals were considered to be sort of uh, on the outside, looking in, that they were the exception rather than the rule, and were treated rather badly. And sometimes the vocations directors themselves would be homosexuals and would either um, refuse to accept those who didn't, candidates who didn't accept homosexuality, or would, uh, even while they were in the seminary, eject them, persecute them and object them for being homophobic, you know. And so we know this took place. I mean, uh, the book Goodbye, Good Men, right, uh, published right here in Cincinnati, uh, details that, uh, you know, the author, uh, mm -hmm. the, what is the name of the author? Um, Michael Rose. Yes, Michael Rose. Thank you. Right. right. Yeah. And, um, Interesting book, sadly interesting, but also uh, no one has contested the truth of the, of the yeah. things that he relates in the book. So, uh, I mean, there are even men in the modern seminaries who've made very powerful statements about what was going on in the seminaries. And it was very evil, right? So, when I was in the Novus Ordo Seminary, a conservative Novus Ordo Seminary, before I joined the Society of St. Pius X as a seminarian, uh, there was an individual like that who actually had to be whisked away. And uh, yes, he began manifesting his tendencies even with regard to some of the students there. And it was a very ugly, ugly affair. Um, so uh, that's what they do. I mean, they, they gravitate toward these environments where they can live out their fantasies. And um, often, Often, um, those who are not homosexual don't understand them. <clears throat> and they don't understand them because those who are not homosexual uh, don't understand how homosexuals, I'll just say it outright, tend to burn with lust. They burn with lust. It is... Uh, it, it, it animates practically their every thought. It's about everything they do. That somehow it, it is it, it is just uh, like the predominant thought in their minds. Um, I've heard that from people, um, not only from those who are not homosexual, I've heard it from homosexuals. And I've, I've seen enough of this to see that, yes, it's... It's like we non-homosexuals don't understand how powerful that force is in them and how difficult it is for them to deal with it and to restrain that. It really takes a powerful grace from God to restrain that. The good news is that the grace is there if they want it. The bad news is if they don't want it, you have to take it very seriously because it's extremely destructive. And uh, it, it will just take over, you know, as it has taken over their lives. So they want to extend that takeover to the lives of others, too. And uh, that's a very serious problem. We saw it happen in the modern seminaries. The modern. And uh, so it is not surprising that traditional seminaries should, should face that, that there should be seminarians, uh, there should be men who are drawn not only by homosexual uh, lust, but they are, are drawn to traditional seminaries because they have a certain, <clears throat> shall we say, appreciation for 
finery, right? <clears throat> they like the the lace and the pomp and the circumstances, pomp and circumstance, <clears throat> and they kind of associated the traditional way with being somewhat esoteric, uh, somewhat different anyway, you know, and um, a bit exotic. And so they might find people of the same mind there who like these things, you know. Um, in any case, those who are uh, responsible for traditional seminaries and traditional seminarians have to be very much on their guard against this. And if they're not, they're going to find that they're going to have a problem. And it's going to begin blowing up all around them. So is it possible? Yes. I would say, is it likely that there is this, a problem? Yes. You know, the, the question is, how did the uh, superiors of the Society of St. Pius X deal with that? Right. If the question is, were there homosexuals who got into the seminary of the Society of St. Pius X, I would say, well, that's probably a given. Um, I would say more than probably a given. Uh, but the question of how the superiors handled it is another issue. Did they not handle it prudently? Well, that's the, the argument of Tristina Niles, that they actually were sympathetic to it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe they were sympathetic to it. That I do not believe. But I see a problem there, and it's a problem kind of we've talked about before, and it's the problem that the Society of St. Pius X leadership has with Rome, modernist Rome, with the modernists now in Rome. And that is the tendency to kind of minimize the evils or overlook certain evil things that are part and parcel to modernism. The Society of St. Pius X leadership is just sort of just, you know, kind of minimized or put aside or, or, um, uh, what should I say, said, well, we can tolerate that or we can tolerate this because we have to somehow um, stay in the good graces uh, as much as we can. We want to work toward full recognition. We want to work toward uh, um, the acceptance, you know, on their part of us. And uh, uh, I think the, the idea is that they're, they consider themselves in partial communion with the modernists in Rome. And, of course, the modernists have introduced this category of thought of being in partial communion. Now, for a, a real Catholic, a traditional Catholic, there is no such category of re in reality of being in partial communion or being, uh, as opposed to being in communion or not in communion. Uh, it's like being in com partial communion with God or partial communion with Christ, you know. Uh, one can make an argument that, well, Satan himself is in partial communion with Christ, you know, for, or, or Judas. I mean, after all, didn't uh, Francis just make the argument? We can't necessarily say that Judas went to hell because, after all, when, when Judas came to the Garden of Gethsemane to kiss, you know, give the kiss of uh, treason to our Lord, our Lord said, friend, what have you come to? And so our Lord called him friend. So there's a, some communion. He's in partial communion with, with our Lord, which is absolute nonsense in terms of the Catholic faith. There's no such thing as being in partial communion. Either you have the faith or you don't. Uh, and uh, either you are in communion with the Catholic Church, either you're in communion with Jesus Christ, or you're in communion with the, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or you're not. There's no such thing as being partially communion. But they seem to be playing this game with, uh, with the modernists in, in modernist Rome now, which is not Catholic Rome at all, quite the contrary, it's anti-Catholic Rome, that they can kind of go along with this idea of being, being in partial communion, sort of straddle that fence when there is no fence there. There's a chasm there, right? And uh, Tom, I fear that that is an indication of something that can also affect them internally in what they are willing to, the evils they can overlook internally and kind of play down and not take too seriously. I don't think it's a stretch to say, well, if, if one can tolerate the evils of the Novus Ordo and just kind of turn a blind eye to them at times and still try to maintain that uh, quasi-relationship there in the hopes that that will somehow yield good fruit and, you know, blossom in the future, I mean, I, I can see that same mentality uh, 
turn toward this internal life of the society of St. Pius X, again, tending to overlook certain evils and letting them fester there, and not taking them that seriously. One of our viewers it might be one of the same problem. She, one of our viewers makes that exact point where she says, if if the society, the Saint Pius X, would cover up uh, abuse cases, does that mean that they also would cover up and hide from the faithful any kind of talks or an agreement that they would reach with with modernist realms? That's mm -hmm. the exact point that you're making there. And it, actually, that's the opposite. That's kind of turning my point around a little bit, <clears throat> because this dear writer says. Well, if they would cover up these abuse cases, if, right, would we not, would we be surprised to find out that they were covering up their arrangements with modernist Rome? What I'm saying is, the other way around, they're basically going forward with their relationship with Rome, always keeping that door open, uh, sort of playing a partial communion game with them. And if they would do that, and kind of, you know, not react to the evils, uh, to, the, to the extent that a Catholics would or should, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say St. Pius X would. Would they also cover up other elements like these abuses? So they, these two arguments kind of complement each other, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, does it prove anything? No. Mm -hmm. um, are there legal cases going forward? I don't know whether they will or not. I don't really know the legal status of all of these things raised. I'm sure it will come to light, though, because, um, well, there might well be lawsuits that issue from it uh, for defamation and, and so on. Um, I, I'm sure in the course of time it's, it's, going to, it's going to come out. Whatever it is, it's not going to be pretty. Mm -hmm. uh, my concern primarily is in both ways with the Society of St. Pius X's um, overtures to Rome, modernist Rome, and whatever accusations there are of abuse going on in the, uh, within the society's ranks, and tolerance on the part of their leaders. My concern in both cases is for the souls involved, mm -hmm. what's going to become of them. Mm -hmm. um, not only in the case of their dealings with modernist Rome, uh, not only the souls of uh, the people, but the souls of the priests and the souls of the very leadership of the Society of St. Pius X. I wonder where they're leading, where they're going themselves. They're not only leading people that way, they're leading the way themselves. And I mean, uh, as they say, I also pray for Francis's conversion and his salvation too. Um, and with regard to the abuse cases, such as they are, you know, whatever they might prove to be, uh, you know, I would pray not only for the victims, but for the, for the clergy involved. Uh, I'm concerned for their salvation, too. And, of course, if the leadership is, uh, is not taking them seriously and, and um, allowing these things to continue and, and to have, uh, you know, a, a terrible effect on the society and on souls, I'm concerned about the leadership, too. I, I don't want them to be in trouble with God. I, especially, you know, anybody who has uh, a love for Catholic tradition, I want to be 100% faithful to it. And uh, I'd want them all to be saints, but then I want myself to be a saint, and I've got a long way to go. So um, we've got to be careful about that. We, we do look back, though, and we see how the saints dealt with these problems how the saints dealt with modernism, how the saints dealt with these cases of abuse, impure abuse, and how resolute they were, and how vehemently they condemned them, and denounced them, and they would not tolerate, <clears throat> St. Pius X would not tolerate modernism, and did everything he could to eradicate it from the church, because he knew it was poison. And again, but neither would he or any other pope worth the salt, uh, tolerate this kind of evil abuse either. Uh, they would not allow any priest uh, to, um, any, any man to become a priest, any man to even be in that position where he could uh, sacrilegiously abuse the priesthood and abusing the, the body and soul of a child. Uh, there's even a talk about, and I haven't been able to verify this, I'd like to find reports of it that are credible. But I've heard from a number of sources that Pope Pius XI 
actually had a priest who was accused of this, tried in the Vatican, found guilty of abusing a child and uh, executed by firing squad. You know, he, that would be, in my mind, very credible. St. Pius V, I understand also, called for the, the death, the actual execution of those, including clergy who were guilty of this crime because uh, it was a crime worthy of death because of the evil that it did to another child, to an innocent child. Mm -hmm. I suppose nowadays people would find that to be a bit excessive, but they don't have a sense of justice and righteousness today. They, they, they sympathize with the wrong for the wrong people. They, they sympathize with the, with the villain and not the victim. Unfortunately. Mm. Father, one other thing with this video, you mentioned the animosity between Church Militant and the Society of St. Pius X. And I think one of the things, in my mind at least, that uh, at least makes some, some of the accusations in this video a bit suspect is the fact that Church Militant repeatedly, repeatedly uh, condemns the Society of St. Pius X on the grounds that they uh, essentially are, are traditional, that they, because the Society of St. Pius X is purportedly traditional, they, mm. uh, they kind of claim this holier-than-thou status. They say that they're better than everyone else mm. in, the, uh, in the church. And so this, this um, traditionalism, as, as church militant sees it, this is a big, big problem for them. And they, mm. they say that, uh, you know, that, that it's hypocritical for the society to take this, this chance and they, they, this stance. And they just repeatedly make this point throughout the video that they are mm -hmm. not fans of the of the traditional Catholic. Oh right. And is there a certain elitism in the Society of St. Pius X? Yes, I believe there is. There was for the five years that I was there too. There's certain elitism, a certain sense that well, you can't really be fully traditional unless you're with in the Society of St. Pius V. You know, it's as though we're saying with our Lord, if you're not with me, you're against me. Mm. Whereas our Lord said to his apostles, if they're not against you, they're for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so there's a difference between himself and them, yeah. right? And, uh, but still, there's this elitist idea that if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's um, somewhat the mentality of the Society of St. Pius X, mm -hmm. uh, probably even today. Uh, however, you know, what you bring up there, Tom, is very important because... Uh, you know, okay, they may, church militant might accuse the members of the Society of St. Pius X of having this sort of holier than thou or more Catholic than thou because we're traditional, okay? Mm -hmm. And they're probably right to a great extent uh, <clears throat> that probably many of the clergy, probably many of the faithful feel that same way, right? Um, but, you know, the church militant itself adopts the same position with different words. As though they're saying, well, the Society of St. Pius X is not in full communion with Rome, and we are, because we recognize Francis as the pontiff, and we, we recognize his hierarchy as the, the true hierarchy. We're recognized by them all as being part of them. And so, in that sense, we are superior to them, and we criticize and condemn them as being lesser Catholics than we are. So you have these two organizations who are coming at this from two different angles, and actually both of them are wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, but they both have the idea, uh, we're more Catholic than you are, you think, you, you and, and condemning the other for thinking that the other side is, thinks they're more Catholic than, than we are. And so, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like listening to two people, kids, arguing in the back seat that, uh, you know, I'm better than you, and I'm especially better than you because you think you're better than me. <laughs> and the other kid's saying the same thing, you know, and back and forth. Um, but this is very human, unfortunately, all too human way to proceed. And um, it's unfortunate. But as I say, I mean, of the two, I would say, I, I, would, I would say that the Society of St. Pius X at least professed uh, adherence to Catholic tradition. Is, I would have to agree with that. Mm. The idea of, uh, voiced by church militant uh, on this idea of partial communion is not a Catholic idea at all. And it certainly doesn't qualify anyone as being more or less Catholic than somebody else. I mean, if that's the case, the Anglicans say that they're more Catholics than the Presbyterians. 
but they're not, <laughs> right? Either way. So in any case, it's it's very very unfortunate. I don't know what the outcome will be, but it's uh, you know I would just say, look, the problem you're both having is that because you're not really both fully traditional. That's the problem. If you're both fully traditional and following Catholic tradition completely, <clears throat> without compromise, you wouldn't be having this problem. But because of the compromises you're making, you are you are in this position, and necessarily so. It, it can't be otherwise. So, uh, in any case, um, that's my plea that everybody just go back to being fully traditional, adopt the practice of fully traditional faith, and, uh, and, and not, not compromise for the sake of uh, pleasing or appeasing the modernists. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, with, with everything going on with the Society of St. Pius X, um, we had an email from a viewer who says that... Um, she had been previously attending an SSPX chapel, but uh, she does not feel comfortable doing that anymore. Specifically, mm -hmm. the, the main thing is uh, that the priest at the Mass, they mention the uh, Pope Francis and the Bishop of the Diocese, the Novus Ordo Bishop of the Diocese and the Canon of the Mass. And uh, she says, this is the only reason that I cannot agree with the SSPX and do not attend their Masses any longer. She says, Father, I want so much to be sure that my strong convictions are correct and that I am not deluding myself. Uh, she asks, could I perhaps go to confession only um, with, the, with the Society of St. Pius X priest? Uh, and she ends the email, Father, by saying, it is difficult to be cheerful at this troubled time in the world, and I pray that God will have mercy on our souls, as it seems to be so evil and bent on destruction. Thank you so much for all that you do. And um, so your response to that, Father, how would you reply? Well, I mean, uh, could, she, could she go to confession to a Pius X priest, I believe, as long as he's a validly ordained priest, mm -hmm. as a faith, I think she could go to him and, uh, you know, expect to be validly absolved, okay. right? Um, as far as the other thing she doesn't feel comfortable with, I can understand why, <laughs> and uh, so I, I certainly couldn't fault her for that. Um, but if she felt the need to be absolved for, for absolution, or even, uh, you know, if the time came for extra motion, she could. Mm -hmm. What, what uh, should one do in this in this circumstance, though, when they, um, you know, are, are so desperate to, to attend a, a true traditional Mass, and uh, the only thing around is this SSPX church? She does not feel yeah. comfortable going there. What should she do? Then she shouldn't. Then she should do what our Catholic ancestors did when we were a missionary country long ago. It wasn't that long ago, actually. Uh, pray the prayers of the home at Mass. Now we can live stream the Masses. That's not the same. She can make a spiritual communion mm -hmm. and uh, spiritually unite herself with the holy sacrifice of the Mass. But if there's any way possible for her to relocate near a fully traditional Catholic chapel, as, for example, the Society of St. Pius V or Congregation of St. Pius V, I'd recommend she do so. Okay. It would be good if she could get to uh, in contact with some of the people there. You know, time time and again, we might get a contact from somebody who, let's say, raising a family a thousand miles away, and they don't have a society of St. Pius V Chapel there, but they'd like to come. And we like to uh, invite them to come, and we find a way to make it possible. Introduce them to people here. If they're looking for work, we try to help them find work here if we can. And try to uh, just sort of open the way for them to come. So what seemed, might seem impossible at first um, becomes possible just by making the effort, and God opens the way. So I'd recommend that anyone in her situation at least make inquiries and let us know. You know, yes, I would like to come to Cincinnati area. I would like to become a member of uh, the Church at Immaculate Conception, or St. Pius V in New York, or St. Anne in Minnesota, or where we have the missions, and, um, you know, let the priest uh, try to, uh, you know, appeal to God to uh, provide the means to make it possible. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, quite a few of our people who are members of our church now relocated here. They did. So it's not a, a impossible. Quite contrary, it's actually a, 
uh, it's rather common that many of the people we have in the church here relocated here for the sake of the church That's and right. the school. That's right. Definitely. <laughs> Father, one other uh, question concerning the Society of St. Pius X. You, you've kind of touched on this already, but uh, just wanted to read through this this uh, particular email where this viewer says that Father Pagliarani, the uh, Superior General of the Society, has stated that he has no intention of signing any kind of agreement uh, until Rome comes back to tradition. So do you think, perhaps, Father, that uh, Father Pagliarani is continuing to make these overtures with Rome just to keep the lines of communication open, as Archbishop Lefebvre had done? Well, it's possible. It's possible. Uh, we'll see. Um, I think Bishop Fillet before him uh, didn't convey that same confidence to people, uh, that they had reason to fear that uh, something was going to be agreed upon that would uh, compromise their position. Uh, Father Pagliarani, I don't know that well. Uh, I, I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. So I really don't know where, don't know where he's coming from. I guess, uh, you know, part of the problem is though that the Society of St. Pius X had decided to take its, any correspondence with Rome, kind of underground, as it were, right? So it's not public anymore, uh, at least not as public as it was. So people don't know what's going on, if anything's going on at all. They don't know. Um, there was a time when it was very public, okay, and the secular press was getting a hold of it and uh, interpreting it or misinterpreting it or whatever they were doing, right? And people were getting very nervous about it. So the society has decided to be much more secretive about these things, as these, these negotiations and so on. So we really don't know what to expect. We do know that the society decided to rebrand itself, right? Back in, what, 2013 or so, about the time Francis uh, came to power <laughs> and um, in modernist Rome. And um, so we find uh, a different approach on their part you know, getting a uh, public relations firm to uh, kind of get, uh, develop a new image for them, one less confrontational and less negative, one more positive. And uh, so uh, we, we, we just really don't know what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. but, uh, and I think Francis also, on his part, has decided to take the submarine uh, uh, to dive, <laughs> right? And... Uh, keep things underground, because I think he was also feeling the heat when these reports came out. I think his own hierarchy around him were getting nervous about, you know, what, what, what deals are you making with uh, Pius X here, you know? Of course, there was a rumor going around. Again, this is what happens when you, you know, generate rumors. Uh, you get all kinds of, uh, uh, all varieties of rumors. One was that uh, so the fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, so we're nervous that Pius X was in negotiations with Rome and Francis was going to use them to try to consolidate all the traditional mass groups together under the Society of St. Pius X, even with the idea then of obliterating them all at once. Which would make sense, you know, if, if, if Francis were a master planner, uh, then that certainly would have entered his mind, and they would have reason to fear that that would have entered his mind. Just recently, uh, now Francis is taking advantage of the confusion and the concern, the anxieties of people, that's how I see it anyway, <clears throat> to, uh, during Holy Week, propose uh, another commission or committee to study women deacons, the question of women deacons, um, just after everybody heaved a sigh of relief, not everybody, that he didn't do this with the document on the Amazon. Now he waits for Holy Week to float that idea, and Sam said establishing a committee now. And uh, also about the universal guaranteed wage, mm -hmm. right? A fundamental socialist, right. you know, bedrock program. Uh, so he says, now's the time we ought to start thinking seriously about that. And um, also something else you just mentioned that he... Uh, He's coming up with now. Um, uh, of course, he's always celebrating Laudato Si, mm -hmm. you know, but now it's the fifth anniversary, so he's uh, bringing that out of its cage and <laughs> trying to renew the, uh, that. But anyway, so he's constantly got these things going on, you know, got this, this ferment going on. 
<clears throat> so um, then he has to deal with it whenever it, it goes around that, that he and the Society of St. Pius X are um, sitting down at the table together, or Francis has representatives who are doing so, it, it worries people on both sides of the table. Right? So neither Francis wants to deal with that, nor uh, Father Pagliari wants to deal with that, I'm sure. So they're basically not going to be carrying on very public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll trick you on there. They end this email, Father, by asking, uh, if you could ever tell me why do you think, really, that the SSPX wants to associate <laughs> themselves with modernist Rome? Uh, they say, I think that Rome is lulling the SSPX to sleep with its step-by-step infiltration Rome. into the society. So they ask, can laity stop this? Do we have any recourse? <laughs> Only by not supporting them. As long as you're supporting them, they think you're supporting their policy. You see, the, even if nothing comes from all these negotiations that have gone on in the past, mm-hmm. and that we have reason to think are continuing now, <laughs> the Society of St. Pius X nonetheless keeps inculcating in the minds of its people, look, Francis is the vicar of Christ on earth. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> he is the supreme pontiff. And, um, and his, the cardinals and the bishops and so on, these are your superiors. The bishop of Covington is your bishop. That is your legitimate superior here. This is the message they're inculcating in the minds of these people. And of course, at the same time, they're inculcating in the minds of people, but we're doing what we're doing because it's traditional, and we're not doing what they tell us to do, even though they are your legitimate superiors. You don't owe them obedience to do anything like that. And uh, so this is taking an entire uh, you know, group of hundreds, thousands of people, some said, some estimates, a million people worldwide, and, and conveying the idea, this, this very, um, well, what would you call it? I mean, it's, it's just a Catholic, Catholic idea yeah. that you've got all of these legitimate superiors over you who are doing such awful things and commanding such awful things, you cannot obey them. But you have to follow us instead and do what we say. Because we're traditional. And that's our claim to fame. But we're also the ones who link you to them. We're also the ones who link you to them because we're trying to be open to them at the same time. Even though we're not doing the things that they tell us to do, yes, they're our superiors and they're yours too. What does this do to the whole concept of obedience, hierarchy, the authority in the church itself, I mean, well, it actually plays right into the hands of the modernists because it actually gives you the idea, the modernist idea of the hierarchy and obedience. I mean, this is actually the idea of the modernists, um, you know, pay lip service to authority, but don't do what they say because you don't agree with this. Read the encyclical of St. Pius X, Pescendi, and I mean, this, it gives you this idea of modernists, that they make a show of being very, very respectful to authority, and then they do what they want. They do what they think they should be doing instead. And, I mean, the Society of St. Pius X is basically raising generations of people to think just like that. So, um, and unfortunately, it's, it's not establishing them in the right principles. Uh, I think this is why Francis has conveyed the idea that he can work with them. And this is why members of the Nova Serba hierarchy have given this idea, we can work with them. Because they have certain common ground with them. Uh, There's a danger there, there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Father, is there uh, anything yeah. else going on that you'd like to talk about tonight? So you have your whole, That's very dangerous. Your whole slew of emails in front of you. <laughs> well, there. you know, I, uh, I actually brought up some articles here which I thought were interesting. Because <laughs> we, uh, you know, some people have commented that we haven't posted programs in a few weeks. And that's not because we haven't done the programs. But, um, and I wouldn't say, you know, I... It was my decision not to post them, and I, not because they were too controversial, although I thought they were, you know. But um, I, I thought that they might have been, um, which is a little indelicate in areas where they needed to be. Uh, I, I wouldn't rule out airing them when the time comes, 
but uh, maybe they um, are a little bit ahead of the schedule, so to speak. As people, as things progress here, things are going to come to light, and then they'll understand what we're talking about. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, there, there are those who continue with regard to this uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, and so on. And I know everybody is, very, is sick unto death <laughs> of this, this whole coronavirus thing. And, um, and I understand why. I am too. You know? But uh, nonetheless, the reality is what it is. And I think people are making a mistake when they, when they say this COVID-19 coronavirus, this is, this is nothing. It's nothing. It's uh, just a big sham. I don't believe that. I believe it is uh, a disease that um, doesn't affect most people badly, and it doesn't affect some people at all, and most people at all. And, uh, but those who it affects badly, it affects very badly. And uh, we know people in the medical field who can attest to that firsthand, that this kills people. And it kills them in a very, very nasty way. So, um, you know, it, it is not something to be taken lightly. But, you see, it's another question to say, are our political leaders taking the right action about it? So, to say, okay, this uh, coronavirus is nothing, it's a sham and a fraud, that's one thing. But that's not the way to react. We don't like the way that our political leaders are handling it. And therefore, we say there's nothing to it. That, that, that doesn't follow. Uh, it's, it's much more reasonable, and I think it also uh, uh, corresponds to reality to say, you know, this is, this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. Even, uh, even Dr. Fauci, right? Uh, came out and said this is, at one point he said this is just a, a particularly bad flu, right? Uh, even he acknowledged that. And even if one admits that, one says, well, okay, yeah, that's not good, and there are people who are going to die from that. If we can prevent that, it would be good to prevent that, right? Uh, to admit that fact, though, is not at the same time to justify all of the actions that have been taken. Um uh, by political leaders imposing quarantines and lockdowns and stay-at-home orders on everybody, um, one can disagree with that and say, okay, we realize there's a problem, we realize there's a, a disease out there, and this is a serious disease, and it does require precautions. But we can also say at the same time, but we don't agree with these methods of dealing with it. You know? And not only we, we can say there are doctors, there are experts in the field who are also questioning the, the methods that are being used to deal with it. And I, I have some articles here about that. Uh, for example, uh, an article in the New York Post um, tells us just recently here, uh, quoting a, a doctor, and he's gone on the record. He, he's a, uh, uh, a doctor, I guess, what is he, his name here? Dan, Daniel Murphy, I think, is the name of the actual doctor. Yes, this is the article he wrote. It was published in uh, the, uh, the New York Post for April 27th, the year, this year, 2020. I've worked the coronavirus front line, and I say it's time to start opening up. So here you have a doctor who's actually worked in the front lines, he's seen the worst of it, in New York. And he says, we've got to open up the country again for the good of everyone. We've got to do that. And you see uh, other articles, Stanford Doctor, Five Reasons to Stop the Panic and End the Total Isolation. And microbiologists, uh, testing shows lockdowns are actually harmful. So, in other words, there are other voices that are saying um, that the lockdowns are also very damaging. And the stay-at-home orders are also very damaging. And shutting down on the economy. More and more voices are being raised that way. Okay? And this is not in any way taking, taking away from the, the, the medical uh, people who've Fought this, been fighting this battle there in the um, intensive care units, the hospitals across the country. Uh, I mean, there goes there are those who are fighting the battle of statistics. Uh, 
And statistics, as you know, can be used in all different ways, right? And um, the fact is, though, that more and more, even medical voices are saying, look, we've got to ease up on this, and we've got to get back to uh, living our lives and running our country and having our economy going uh, so we can feed our children and let the children play and not be locked up all day. I mean, simple, everyday, normal things that have become abnormal now because of this novel virus. Uh, the voices are, are rising that we need to um, move on from this right now. And there are those who claim that herd immunity is the only real way to solve this problem. And you know, in a sense, um, even the arguments that are used by uh, by the biologists and the medical pe people telling you that this virus keeps mutating, and therefore, you know, one vaccine might not fit all or serve all purposes. So we've been promised this vaccine, vaccine, you know, perhaps a year and a half out. That is supposed to be the great deliverance, and then the, the meanwhile the the, uh, the pathogen is mutating, and uh, that we can't keep up with it. So there are those who are saying now that herd immunity is really the only way we're going to get out of this, but the lockdowns are exactly the, the opposite of what you need to do for herd immunity. That uh, the big bad virus is going to be waiting for us as soon as we all come out again. So um, so. You, I guess my concern, really, Tom, is that I'm hearing so many things from so many people, and I'm trying to keep up and trying to read what I consider to be reasonable information, and also referring it to people in the medical field who can tell me whether it's reliable or not. Fortunately, I know some good souls who I have great confidence in in the medical field. And... Um, but there's so much confusion out there, contradictions from one expert to another, you know. And it seems that even the same voices are contradicting themselves. And this does not inspire confidence. It inspires panic in people, as though to say, our commanders don't know what they're doing. And they don't know what we should do uh, by giving us contradictory directions. I think one of the first of the contradictory directions of many, many is don't wear masks. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, you can wear masks if you have them. Well, you must wear masks now, okay? <laughs> but, uh, and if you don't have masks, make your own masks. But don't bother making your own mask then because it's not really effective, right? <clears throat> and we're telling these things one thing after another. And, and eventually, rational people who are not just reacting out of Re fear, but who are re trying to respond intelligently, begin to say, I mean, they begin to think, our, our leaders don't know. They don't know what they're, what they're doing. And so they're just making it up as, as they go along. And that will make reasonable people afraid. <clears throat> and that would make even reasonable people panic. Uh, so I, what I see happening around the country is that people are just likely to break out of this mode and react against it and perhaps even react irresponsibly against it because they just feel well i can't trust anything i'm told so i, I put no credence in any of this um but uh and i i really don't want that to happen either you know because uh you I know mean, it's a kind of a delicate process we have to go through and we have to get it right but this is where i, I think people are also afraid even in the academic point of view, the political leaders, uh, people just don't have all that confidence now that they're being led directly and they're going to get this right. Bottom line for me, we're making a big mistake if we're expecting <clears throat> any of these people to get this right, because this is above the pay grade of everybody. It's above the medical pay grade. It's above the political pay grade. It's far above the media pay grade <clears throat> to get this right. Way far beyond that, right? <clears throat> it's beyond the economic pay grade to get this right. <clears throat> because if this is, as I believe it is, part of a divine chastisement, like a divine shot across the bow, uh, 
<clears throat> to the world, in which God is saying, I'm very serious about this, and <clears throat> you could all get your wish, and you could end up in a hellish chaos, moral chaos, if that's what you wish. But I'm telling you, I want you to um, turn away from sin, turn to me, right? The only solution for any of this is God's grace, really, ultimately. And so um, I think it's a big mistake to get so wound up in all of this that we start running around like chicken little. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the people who are at the drop of a hat are going to hide under the bed. I mean, they, they, they react in fear. I'm talking about what concerns me now is reasonable people, responsible people are becoming afraid because they have, have little confidence in their leaders. <clears throat> Even religious leaders, right? Economic leaders, political leaders, military leaders, perhaps, um, and medical leaders to know what to do about this. Uh, some even, you know, say, well, they're, they're just deceiving us. Others say, no, they just don't know. <clears throat> and that's why they're contradicting themselves and each other. And so the, le the level of public discourse rises and becomes more and more shrill, so that even reasonable, thoughtful people begin to get very nervous, worried, anxious, and even, even on the verge of panic. So we have to uh, stop this, and the only way to do that is by taking all that rhetoric that we're pouring out in all directions here on earth and turn it heavenward and turn it into prayer to God and uh, to address God with our concerns. That's what we need to do. We need to address God with these concerns because he's the only one who really, who, he's the only one who can handle this, who can really solve this problem. And I pray that there are enough uh, people of goodwill in the world that he uh, would spare us and uh, give us another opportunity to get this right. So, um, anyway, we have to pray for that. Um, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is crucial to that. That's why we, we've never... I mean, I've been a certain, under a certain amount of pressure to follow the, the pattern that has been set about churches closing down, right? And uh, that goes on to this day, even daily Masses now. I wonder, okay, is, are we going to get um, the, the local constabulary visiting our doors, you know, telling people to get out of the church? They have elsewhere. Are we going to have the community uh, vigilantes showing up? You know, uh, I don't know. I never know. But uh, I've been told, even by our own public officials here, that we have a recognized right, at least the governor of Ohio recognized that right, to be here and to have our religious, public religious services. He recognizes that right. He would rather we didn't. The health department would rather we didn't. But I can't go on the basis of the fact that, well, gee, you know, the, the health department would rather I not practice my priesthood, uh, I mean, be a priest and serve as a priest and offer mass for the people. So because it would make Governor DeWine happy, I, I think I'd better just lock the doors and shut everybody out of the church. I can't do that. It's impossible. Governor DeWine himself would certainly understand that, I think. You know, he's a smart enough man and a wise enough man to understand. Well, yeah, you know, I, I can't just say I'd, I'd rather all you churches close down and then expect all the churches to close down. It's kind of ironic that, that it seems that that's what happened. With the Novus Ordo, they didn't even have to say yeah. that. <laughs> they just closed down anyway. Um, so, uh, but the traditional Mass is the essence of this whole, that's where the, the nexus of this comes. The nexus of the problem in the new Mass is what led us to this crisis. And the nexus of the solution is right there in the traditional Mass, the holy sacrifice of the cross, of the Calvary, of our Lord. And so we have to uh, insist on maintaining that. Um, so uh, that is why I've just, uh, you know, it's not a matter of obstinacy. It's not a matter of saying, well, you know, we're not going to give in. There's nothing to do with that. Because my, my natural tendency would to be compliant, because as a Catholic, I respect public authority. Um, 
But, you know, there are certain things where even public authority has to, and does, respect, at least in Ohio so far, has respected the right of the Catholic Church to practice, even if the Novus Ordo was shut down. Uh, they have at least respected the fact that we can have Mass and have people come and attend it. Um, as long as we're, we are, we're showing our respect for them, too, and the authority they do have, by doing everything in our power reasonably to, to um, keep everything safe, you know, to, to comply as much as we can with the standards of safety and security. Uh, and we have not had, thanks be to God, even a, a, a hint of uh, uh, COVID-19 affecting any of our parishioners, any of our church members, or any of their family. Uh, which I, I think is due to the, uh, the efforts that we're making, but I think more than that, it's God himself seeing the efforts we're making, and he is, he's taking care of that for us, um, because we are taking it seriously. So anyway, uh, I, I just thought it was good to point that out. I, I, I think we have to keep you know, moving forward and pushing forward for this idea that we have to get our country out from under the bed, <laughs> from hiding under the bed. We've got to get out. We've got to live. We've got to take reasonable precautions and, uh, and, and make it work. And if we have to humble ourselves to do so, so be it. But our Lord humbled himself much more than any of us have even thought of doing for the sake of uh, justifying us from sin and sanctifying our souls and finally glorifying our souls in heaven, as he had with so, has with so many saints. And our Lord is asking us to humble ourselves now, too. <laughs> so uh, that's what we need to do. Follow what Our Lady has told us at Fatima. Humble ourselves uh, before God and uh, stop sinning. Make reparation for the sins that are committed and uh, appeal to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Pray the Rosary. Pray the life of Christ in the Holy Rosary. Pray the Gospel. That's the Rosary. <laughs> and uh, that is very, very pleasing to Our Lady. It unites our hearts with hers in pondering the things of the life of our Lord. That's what the Gospel says about our, our Blessed Mother. That's what she did. And uh, so that's what she wants us to do right now, uniting ourselves, our hearts with her heart. Hmm. There's the answer right there. And and come to Calvary. Right? Take your place at the foot of the cross at Holy Mass. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, I, I know I speak for a lot of people when I say thank you for offering Mass every day. It's, it's been a real blessing to still have daily Mass here. Um, even mm-hmm. with, with Father Greenwald, sometimes we have two Masses. Um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of weekdays and on Sundays, we, we've even been having four Masses. So, mm-hmm. uh Thank you. Thank you for that. And oh, thank, thank you. Well, you're welcome, Tom. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you thank me, and I thank God, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he, yeah. he made that possible. Yeah. Um, and thank you, by the way, uh, I don't know if the people know that uh, live streaming is largely your effort. Not exclusively. Not exclusively. You, you've had uh, very important allies yes. who've done a lot of work. Wow. And, but, I mean, you have, you know, pushed this forward here to make this happen. Uh, and I appreciate that very much, sure. getting that uh, live stream there. Hopefully, very soon, we'll be able to, and this will be an investment. This will be an investment, but we're working toward uh, formalizing all of that and bringing it up to date and bringing it up to specs so it is really well done. Uh, but this, for this, we need equipment, we need labor, we need to invest um, in state-of-the-art equipment, which is... Expensive, but not nearly as expensive as I thought it would That's be. That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, but I mean, I remember you asking me how much you think this is going to cost <laughs> to do all that, and I said, "Well, I was, you know, tempted to say fifty thousand dollars, but as I thought, you know, even I was yeah. talking to you, I said, uh, probably somewhere in the area of twenty thousand, I think, by the time we're done." And you said, well, actually, that's about the ballpark, you know, which is for uh, for us is a lot. Yeah, definitely. But. Uh, you know, with, with adequate help, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. And then we can finally get this, uh, I mean, you brought it up to a certain level now. We're talking about really raising it up to a, a very high level yeah. where it really belongs. 
because of the nature of the material we're trying to make available for people, yeah. deserves the best uh, media, as it were, <laughs> medium. Uh, I thank you for that, Tom. And also, <clears throat> you know, people are asking, well, how do I know that you're going to be live streaming the Mass on a certain day at a certain time? Uh, actually, there is an answer to that question now. Because we're happy to send electronically, happy to send this, the church bulletin here to anybody who wants it. As long as we have an email address, we can do that. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm also contacting our school secretary here, our intrepid school secretary, as I can to let them know if I'm offering a 7 a.m. mass that is not on the bulletin. And uh, she will send out word to everybody on the email list to let them know Father James will offer a 7 a.m. mass tomorrow morning or, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week, just to bring people up to, uh, uh, up to speed on that so they know what to expect. So they can get the bulletin online if we, if we know that they want it, and we have an email address to send it to. Um, but they can also get those alerts mm -hmm. daily if they want to say, uh, there'll be a 7 a.m. mass live stream tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we're trying to make it as available as we possibly can to as many people as possible. Absolutely. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Almost certainly done. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. <clears throat> Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.